I don't think it was me. It doesn't sound like me. I don't know even what they're talking about. I have no idea. No idea. It doesn't sound like him. What are they talking about? It's crazy. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast. As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. In Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove. Why are you laughing already, Desi? <laughs> Out in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster. In Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Ohio on the Green Renaissance Network, WGRN 94.1 FM in Columbus. In Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota, and of course, coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee, and five days a week, blanketing planet Earth. On Radio Sputnik, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today. As the uh, as the song says, we are going to try to make sense of it all. <laughs> Why are you already oh, laughing? Oh, my goodness. Why are this you whole, already laughing? This whole Trump thing. Oh, the, okay. the, 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 all right. I don't know what your people are talking about. I, well, we will get that to, doesn't sound like me at all. We will get to that momentarily. And I know a lot of people are talking about that uh, today. Uh, and... <laughs> It's it is an amazing story, but uh, it's I think it's even amazinger than people are currently giving it credit for. So I will get to that in a little bit, and uh, also we've got an update today from the state election director in Maryland. Uh, I I spoke to her uh, just a few minutes ago on that breaking story that we covered yesterday, where the results from the April twenty sixth primary election. Uh, in Maryland, specifically in the city of Baltimore, have now been completely decertified across the entire city. Wait, what? Yes. Uh, talked about it yesterday as it was breaking. I've got some uh, more details now, more specific details now uh, that I will get to in a bit. But another story that was breaking um, just as we went off air yesterday, we I, I didn't hear about it until we went off air. Tens of thousands of gallons of crude oil now. Spilling into the uh, or spilled into the Gulf of Mexico, almost 90,000 gallons of crude oil gushed from a shell oil facility into the Gulf of Mexico off the Louisiana coast on Thursday, leaving a 13 by two mile sheen, 13 miles by two mile sheen of oil on the waves. According to federal authorities, the Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement 
which is part of the U.S. Interior. I've never even heard of that. Have you heard of Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement? Yes, it's you, you a, have heard of them. It's a remember the old Minerals Management Service that yeah. was broken up because it failed so catastrophically oh, with the Gulf of Yeah, they were split up into two different divisions: the Bureau ah. of Ocean Energy Management, and this is the other half. Oh, okay, good to know. Uh, it's part of the U.S. Interior Department. They said that uh, Shell Offshore Inc. reported the production from all wells that flow from its Brutus platform about 90 miles south of Timbalier, Timbalier, Timbalier Island, uh, Island uh, uh, Louisiana, ha- has been had been shut off. This is approximately 160 mi- 65 miles southwest of New Orleans. Shell said on Thursday night that a company helicopter spotted the sheen near its glider subsea system at the Brutus platform. No drilling occurs at the site currently. Yeah, it's just production. It's an underwater pipe system connecting to a central hub, according to the company. Now, these numbers, of course, come from the company, this 90,000 gallons. And as we have found in previous incidents along these lines... Whether it was the BP Gulf oil spill, whether it was the spill recently out here in uh, in Santa Barbara, what or was up that, in about North six Dakota, months ago? Up in yeah. North, uh, right up in it's always it's always more than initially reported. They always seem to downplay the amount. So right now, what we know is ninety thousand gallons of crude. Of course, it's one hundred and sixty-five miles uh, offshore, essentially. Uh, you know, so it's going to be very difficult for for the citizenry to oversee and make sure it really is ninety thousand gallons of crude. Yeah, it turns out that it was a uh, on the su- on the sea floor mm-hmm. a, a pipe that had uh, some kind of problem with it. So they sent a remote operated vehicle down to take a look, and that's how they found the source of the leak. But the question now is, gosh, what's down there at the at the sea floor, five thousand feet down, or however deep this particular one is? What's down there breaking up the line? What caused the problem? You're I'm saying there's, there's there's something no. down there that no, caused I just think the, it's interesting well, in fact, that that that's something that's you know it's incredibly difficult to oversee and sure. they don't have any equipment there like they would on a pipeline, for example, to say oh we have a problem this remotely operated equipment. So they can only find out after the problem happens and after it creates a sheen on the surface of the ocean. They call it a uh, shell subsea wellhead flow line. Right. That's what that's what we know. It's it's not drilling because there's no drilling going on. So it's not like there's a, a well that is out of control. Right. Right. No, right. Exactly. Uh, and of course, the U.S. government to the rescue, the Coast Guard is responding to that spill. Uh, authorities say that uh, Shell has isolated that leak. Um, they say it was secured. We'll see. Uh, you know, we never know. Again, we never know with these things if they are secured and the companies tend to lie about them until they are otherwise somehow called out. Um the Wall Street Journal reported uh, that the Shell has now dispatched boats on Friday to begin cleanup of this spill. Shell spokesman Kimberly Winden says we are working with the United States Coast Guard and the National Oceanic Atmospheric Association to define the best approach to clean and uh, to contain and clean up the spill. So your tax dollars at work once again helping out these uh, the good folks at the oil companies. Shell has contracted uh, Marine Spill Response Corporation and Clean Gulf Associate, uh, Associates to begin cleanup and containment operations. The cause of the leak remains under investigation. Local activists, however, are, um, are not convinced that the spill is over. Uh, they, they are concerned, uh, according to Think Progress, um, 
the uh, the folks in let's see this is uh, south of Louisiana's Terrebonne Parish, home to one of the country's largest communities of Huma Native Americans who still depend on subs- subs- subsistence lifestyles. If the spill impacts marine life or washes ashore, it's likely that those communities will be uh, some of the first impacted. Colette Bichon Battle, executive director of the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy, said, You sit down for dinner and you watch the news and you see another spill with tens of thousands of gallons of oil and reports that no one has heard or the leak has stopped. And you know just from experience that that's probably not true. She said, who's going to be hit? It's going to be our Native American communities that live on and depend on the coast. It's going to be the poorest people on the coast that depend on the ecosystem to be healthy. Uh, And this spill, by the way, well-timed. It comes just before um, battle. Uh, uh, The activist from the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy uh, and others are set to travel to D.C. for a weekend rally to stop offshore drilling that is scheduled for Sunday. Organizers expect thousands to march. Uh, to draw attention uh, to the concerns uh, about uh, offshore drilling for communities along the Arctic, the Atlantic, and the Gulf Coast. Participants hope that the rally will encourage the Obama administration to reconsider allowing offshore drilling in the Gulf and the Arctic under the administration's brand-new five-year leasing plan. That plan takes the Atlantic apparently off the table, due to community opposition on the Atlantic. But meanwhile, down in the Gulf and the Arctic, uh, no worries. Keep on drilling. What could possibly go wrong? Of course, what went wrong was, among other problems, in 2010 when the BP oil rig exploded in the Gulf, killed 10 men, released some four... uh, I'm sorry, 11 men. You're right. Thank you. And uh, released some 4.2 million barrels of oil into the water. BP was eventually ordered to pay a little bit more than $20 billion in the settlement and another $4 billion uh, settlement resulting from a federal criminal probe. But thanks to the U.S. tax code, BP can classify up to $15 billion of that, uh, of that money they have to pay as a, quote, business expense. Tax write-off. Yes, saving the company as much as $5 billion. So congratulations to BP. Uh, on that, and we'll keep our eye on what the real numbers tend to be down there in the Gulf. Um, because we like reality on this program. Someone who doesn't seem to like reality, Donald Trump. You may <laughs> have heard this uh, story by now, uh, and I and I tell it not to hit you with it yet again, but because it, it ties into a bigger picture here. So, all right, Donald Trump apparently masqueraded as his own publicist some years ago in the uh, 70s and 80s and 90s. Um, Washington Post is reporting uh, and and including audio tape from a call that was made. And apparently this happened. uh, This happened a lot, according to reporters at the time. Uh, A call in this case from that was recorded from someone named John Miller. Uh, All of these calls in the 70s, 80s and 90s were from someone named John Miller or John Barron public relations men who sound precisely like Donald Trump himself, who indeed are Donald Trump himself, according to the Washington Post, Trump masquerading as an unusually helpful and boastful advocate for himself, according to a bunch of journalists uh, and uh, several of uh, Trump's top aides that the Washington Post spoke to. 
Um, some reporters found the calls at the time from John Miller or John Barron to be disturbing or even creepy. In 1990, Trump testified in a court case that, quote, I believe on occasion I used that name. So he admitted using that name, either John Barron or John Miller. Um, from his earliest years in business, he occasionally called reporters using the name John Barron, says The Washington Post. A John Barron described as a, quote, vice president of the Trump Organization appeared in a front page New York Times article as early as 1980, defending Trump's decision to destroy sculptures on the facade of the Bonwit Teller department store building, the uh, Fifth Avenue landmark that uh, he demolished to make way for the Trump Tower, which, by the way, is beautiful, fantastic, one of the most beautiful towers ever, ever, ever that existed. Barron was, uh, John Barron was quoted uh, variously as Trump spokesman, Trump executive, Trump representative in uh, various stories for New York Magazine, Washington Post, other publications. Trump apparently had a fascination with the name Barron. It persisted for decades when he was seeing uh, Marla Maples, his who became his second wife, uh, was seeing her while he was still married to his first wife, Ivana. He sometimes used the code name The Baron when he left messages for her, apparently. And in 2004, when Trump commissioned a dramatic TV series based on the life of a New York real estate mogul like him, his only request to the writer was to name the character Baron. Okay, uh, and uh, oh, and when his uh, Trump and his third wife Melania had a son, they named him Baron. He likes the name. So with that uh, all said, uh, this call to a People magazine reporter from 1991, uh, Carswell was the uh, woman's name, uh, Sue Carswell, uh, about a 15-minute call, and it's available at Washington Post. Here is just a piece of it so you can get an idea for yourself. Decide for yourself who this guy is talking to Sue Carswell. The audio is not great here. Because uh, it's an old phone call, um, but uh, you can probably get enough of it to uh, to understand. Here, here, here's a clip of uh, quote unquote John Miller talking to Sue Carswell about Donald Trump from 1991. Well, she called and wanted to go out with him. That I can tell you. Um, and one of the other people that you're writing about. I'm, uh, by the way, I'm, I'm sort of new here, and I'm. What is your position? Well, I'm sort of handling PR because he gets so much of it. Yeah. He's doing well financially and he's doing well in every other way so I've sort of been put in here to handle because I've never seen anybody get so many calls from the press where did you come from I, I was I basically work for different firms I work for a couple of different firms and I'm somebody that knows and I think somebody that he trusts and likes so I'm going to do this I'm going to do this a little part time and then you know with my life too yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> so that was John Miller who knows who John Miller was doesn't sound familiar at all of course, well, yeah, that's Trump. That's obvious. It's so obviously it's clearly Donald Trump. And yet he goes on the Today Show once again by phone this morning on NBC uh, uh, Today Show. And he is asked about this call. Hey, was that you? Did you make calls? This this uh, recording that uh, 15 minutes of, of John Miller talking about intimate details that he, he seems to know about you, Donald Trump, and, and uh, Marla Maples and everything else back from 1991. Was that you on that phone call? It doesn't sound like my voice at all. I have many, many people that are trying to imitate my voice, and uh, you can imagine that. And this sounds like one of the scams, one of the many scams. It doesn't sound like me. The Post says that you acknowledged a couple decades ago that, in fact, that was you, but it was a joke. 
I don't think it was me. It doesn't sound like me. I don't know even what they're talking about. I have no idea. The Post also says this is something you did rather routinely, that you would call reporters and plant stories and say either you were John Miller or John Barron, but in fact it was actually you on the phone. Is that something you did with any regularity? No, it I was not me on the phone. It was not me on the phone. And it doesn't sound like me on the phone, I will tell you that, and it was not me on the phone. It was not me. Just, uh, no question about it. It was not Donald Trump. And it doesn't sound like it me. doesn't sound like him at all. He says now uh, Sue Carswell at the time from People magazine. That was a woman he was talking to on that phone call. Uh, played the tape uh, way back when, I guess, for uh, for Marla Maples. And uh, she confirmed that it was Trump. And she burst into tears as she heard this John Miller deny that a ring that Donald Trump had given to Marla Maples at the time was an engagement ring. Yeah. Uh, Carswell was, according to the Post, was far from the only reporter who received calls from suspiciously Trumpian characters at the time. Editors at the New York tabloids said calls from Barron um, were at points so common that they became a recurring joke on the city desk. Everyone knew it was him. Carswell's story at the time was headlined, here was the headline, Trump says goodbye, Marla, hello, Carla, about this other model that he was dating, and a mysterious PR man who sounds just like Donald calls to spread the story. (laughs) That was the headline. And a few weeks later, when people uh, ran a story about Trump and Maples getting engaged, Trump, Trump was quoted as saying that John, that the John Miller call was a, quote, joke gone awry. So he admitted that was him years ago, and now he says with a straight face on uh, NBC uh, Today show that uh, that was not me. And that- they went right forward past that onto asking him another question about Paul Ryan, yeah. as if, okay, well, we'll accept that answer. Yeah, he said, can we move on? And, and uh, they did. And that was that. So he's a pathological liar. He's clearly... Uh, he's a pathological liar. Now, uh, you know, people are covering that story, obviously. But why does this stuff matter? Well, I guess if this was during the primary election, I probably would have ignored it on the show. But for one thing, it looks like he will be the uh, Republican Party nominee for president of the United States. Does it matter that we have uh, a pathological liar, uh, a sociopathic liar? Uh, as president of the United States, as a nominee for the uh, for the Republican Party, are they concerned about that? And why? Why does it matter? Uh, well, here's one reason why it mattered. Trump has now tapped, according to uh, Reuters, uh, a uh, uh, one of America's most ardent drilling oil drilling advocates and climate change ch- climate change skeptics to be to help him draft his energy policy. U.S. Republican Congressman Kevin Kramer of North Dakota is a major, uh, which is a major drilling state. Uh, this congressman Kramer is writing a white paper on energy policy for Donald Trump. Kramer was among a group of Trump advisors who recently met with lawmakers from Western energy states who hope Trump will open up more federal land for more drilling. Kramer said in an interview. Uh, that his paper was going to emphasize the dangers of foreign ownership of U.S. energy a- assets, burdensome taxes, overregulation. 
Uh, it would emphasize more drilling, less regulation, less taxes and curbs on efforts to combat climate change. Kramer said he believes that the earth is cooling, mm. not warming. And he has opposed efforts by the Obama administration to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. He is uh, North Dakota's only congressman and uh, and he was has been an early uh, Trump supporter. Kramer said, uh, referring to the recent lifting of a decades-old oil ban uh, ban on oil exports uh, here in this country, that the last thing we need is more rules. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Hillary Clinton should be noted uh, as the uh, front runner for the uh, Democratic Party nomination has advocated shifting the country to 50 percent clean energy by 2030. But but these guys, they're completely against it. They want more drilling, less regulation, less taxes, make life easier for them to spill even more thousands, tens of thousands of gallons of crude oil into the Gulf. That's what they want. And now this so this story comes out today about this energy uh, guy, uh, energy advisor, Congressman Kevin Kramer from North Dakota that came out in Reuters. And uh, at the same time, uh, Ian E. Daly is reporting uh, that this lawmaker, Kevin Kramer, while he is a skeptic of whether climate change is caused by human activity, would like to see a carbon tax as the answer uh, for the public's appetite for action to protect climate. A carbon tax, as The Hill reports, uh, could also serve as a substitute for Obama's uh, clean power plan, which limits carbon emissions from power plants and uh, is opposed by most Republicans. Kramer says he can do all that if he wants, referring to uh, Trump's position that climate change is a hoax because, as we've been reporting he thinks it's a hoax uh, and says so he says but my advice would be uh, while I'm a, a skeptic as well Donald Trump is a product of political populism and political populism believes that there needs to be some addressing of climate change and uh, apparently he's arguing that a tax on carbon would do that Trump of course has repeatedly dismissed concerns about climate change he has said for example quote that uh, the concept of climate change quote was created by and for the Chinese in order to make US manufacturing non-competitive so he's make stuff up um, and so uh, so Kramer is saying it could be a, a, a carbon tax now ExxonMobil has also called for a uh, carbon tax some years ago as a response to global warming, despite that company spending millions and millions of dollars funding climate change denial groups. And yet, whenever they're questioned about that, they say, hey, you know, we're concerned about climate change. Look, we call for a, a, a tax on carbon. And they were recently asked, uh, well, what are you doing to uh, are, there are several uh, pieces of legislation. I think Bernie Sanders has one, if I'm not yes, mistaken, he has. Uh, calling for a tax on carbon. Uh, and they were asked, well, which of those uh, pieces of legislation are you supporting? And they uh, quickly turned tail and ran away. They are supporting none of it. They're, so they are saying they are supporting it, mm. even though they are not. Right. They say they support it. They do nothing about it. In fact, they right. and then they work in other ways, uh, privately in back channels to stop any other action from actually happening. And the only reason they are in favor of a carbon tax, you know, they were not in favor of cap and trade. That was a Republican idea. Had there been more uh, Republican support for it, cap and trade as a plan to curb carbon emissions would have easily happened. Uh, but they know how difficult it is 
to pass any type of new tax whatsoever. So I think it's a fairly safe proposition for ExxonMobil and for this Republican uh, Kevin Kramer, who uh, congressman who was advising Donald Trump to call for a carbon tax. They can call for it all they want because they know that it's really real damn difficult to pass any new taxes. Now, uh, so they can sort of have it both ways with this, it seems to me. Now, a, a friend of ours uh, in a uh, amongst a group of uh, environmentalists, an email list, um, says that these reports now about Kevin Kramer and this idea that uh, Donald Trump would ever possibly call for a carbon tax, uh, this uh, our friend uh, regards this as, uh, quote, obviously fake news. He says, am I the only one who thinks the Trump campaign orchestrated this story about his new energy advisor's alleged advice to Trump as part of a gambit to convince, quote unquote, moderate Republican voters they should go with him over the Democratic candidate? I don't believe this for a second. Now, I don't know if that person is right, to be frank. Uh, I think this may be a real story um, because call for that carbon tax and uh, it's probably not going to happen. At least that was the case, what, about 10 years ago when they started talking about these uh, carbon taxes um, back when new taxes were even more ridiculous to even contemplate. Now, maybe so. Um, but so, uh, you know, but the question, but the point I, I'm making here, the larger point, and I know I got to get to a break here, Des, but the larger point that I'm trying to make is who knows? Who knows if this is a fake story put forward? And I'm not, you know, suggesting some, you know, massive conspiracy, some puppet master pulling the strings. What I'm uh, suggesting is that you have a pathological liar at the top of this ticket as the Republican nominee. And in one sense, as bad as George W. Bush was, you knew how bad he was because he was just kind of a dumb guy getting it wrong, being manipulated by Dick Cheney and everything else. But when you've got a guy who is clearly a sociopath, a sociopath, a pathological liar who will look at evidence which is right in front of us. Yes, he made that call in the 90s. Dozens and dozens of people have said that people who know him have said that we've got the audio tape. Clearly, that is him. And yet he still says and even he said it was him. And yet when he's asked about it, no, that wasn't me. I didn't say that. That wasn't me. The guy is pathological. And he's going to be the nominee for the Republican Party for president of the United States. So when I hear these people and I hear, you know, Bernie or bust people saying, ah, you know what, he would I I hate Hillary so much. Uh, I would never vote for her if she wins the nomination. I'd vote for Trump or I'd stand out, uh, stand, uh, you know, back off entirely, won't vote at all. OK, fine, fine. But just remember the result, if Donald Trump wins, is you are putting a sociopathic, pathological liar into the White House. And uh, those guys tend to be kind of dangerous. Just my two cents, just my opinion. <sighs> okay, I'll calm down now. Maybe when we come back, uh, I spoke with the director of the spoke with the director of the state elections board in Maryland this morning concerning the news that we reported yesterday of the April 26th primary election results in Baltimore now being completely decertified due to 
reported irregularities. I'll have some info on that, uh, some new details uh, that I got exclusively this morning. It's kind of a remarkable situation. So I'll have those details straight from the horse's mouth when we return. I am Brad Friedman, and no lie, this is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to keep doing so, now more than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going, or even just a one-time-only contribution. While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions those horses are running on. Because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy by taking about 60 seconds right now to stop by bradblog.com donate today. And thanks. Uh-huh. You can count on me like one, two, three, I'll be there. And I know when I need it, I can count on you like Counting four, on you three, here on the broadcast. You, there. we, the people to oversee our own elections, if possible. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com, thank you for uh listening for tuning in to the Bradcast. Uh, all right. We, we covered yesterday as this uh, story was just breaking from the Baltimore Sun that uh, State Board of Elections officials um, have ordered the results of Baltimore's uh, April 26th primary election in Maryland to be decertified. And they are launching a precinct level review of irregularities. Maryland's uh, State Board of Elections Administrator Linda Lamone became concerned, reportedly, according to the Sun, uh, when uh, city officials found uh, a bunch of provisional ballots that had not been analyzed and an unusually high discrepancy between the number of voters who checked in at polling places and the number of ballots cast. The number of ballots cast at the polls was higher the paper says, than the number of check-ins at the polls. Now, there are a number of, uh, of close races uh, including a, uh, a primary, a Democratic primary for mayor. And as the uh, city, as Baltimore has not elected a Republican mayor in something like 20 years, whoever wins that Democratic primary will be most likely uh, the next mayor of Baltimore. So that's particularly important, although there are some 2,400 votes now reportedly between those uh, candidates in the mayoral race. But three city council races were decided by just a few hundred votes. So they're going to uh, they have decertified the results and they're going to do an investigation and uh, they may have to recount. Uh, one of the items in that uh, story that I read yesterday, and I apologized to you all because I didn't know what this meant as we read it, uh, among the issues of concern that were brought forward by, uh, by, by the way, uh, election integrity uh, advocates out there in, um, 
in Maryland. Go so, election integrity yeah, go advocates. Election te- among the issues uh, that that are of concern here, eight data files went missing for about a day after the election. And I apologize, Esther, because I had no idea what data files mean in that context. What are eight data files? I've never heard that word. Is it memory cards? Um that are you know in the uh, in the in the voting systems, the electronic uh, well, either the touchscreens, which for the first time since 2002, Maryland did not use in their April 26 primary. Maryland, along with Georgia, was the uh, were the first two states to go statewide with Diebold touchscreen voting systems back in 2002, and finally, finally, they got rid of them. As of uh, the April 26th primary there, they were allowed to vote on paper for the first time. And that is good news because touchscreen systems are completely unverifiable. But if there are questions about the paper ballots, as long as the chain of custody is secure now for those paper ballots, some, what, three weeks now after the uh, after the primary election, if the chain of custody is secure, they can go back and count them if they have a question. So Baltimore Sun reports eight data files went missing for about a day after the election. Well, what the hell is a data file? So uh, I spoke this morning with Linda Lamone, the administrator of the uh, State Board of Elections, uh, to get an idea of, of what what's going on here. And she explained to me that they refer to a, a data file, or at least the paper, when they referred to a data file, it's actually a USB flash drive that is in the uh, in each optical scan system. She says uh, she told me in our phone call that each uh, scanning system has a flash drive that records the votes that are scanned throughout the day. They have cryptographic keys that are unique to each unit, and they have the event log of things that may have happened on that machine during the day and so forth. She describes them as pretty secure devices. Now, she also uh, spent years describing uh, the state's Diebold touchscreen systems as pretty secure devices, even though they are anything but. And by the way, that is something that she knew. Because as we released years ago at uh, Bradblog.com, a report that was called at the time the Pentagon Papers of E-Voting Reports, the SAIC uh, report on those Diebold touchscreen systems in Maryland, that they actually, that the State Board of Elections, including Linda Lamone, had actually kept the public from being able to see. It took years for us to get it. You can see it now. You can see how they were redacting it, uh, redacting the version of this security report even before they gave it to elected officials. You can look up SAIC report or Pentagon Papers. And you'll find it at bradblog.com. It was uh, quite the exclusive that we broke at the time. So Linda Lamone knows that the touchscreens weren't secure. Uh, and uh, yet she says that these cryptographic keys that are put into the side of the optical scan machines, that they are secure. OK, that's what she says. Eight of them were reportedly missing for about a day after the election, said the Baltimore Sun. Linda Lamone tells me. Uh, that uh, they're pretty secure devices. If anybody tried to manipulate the data on those USB flash drives, the system wouldn't allow us to use it and that we'd have to rescan the ballots. That's what she says. All right. Um, They apparently did find uh, most, I guess, seven of the eight of these USB flash drives within a day. And here is her breakdown to me 
to the broadcast exclusively about what happened to those eight flash drives. Uh, two of them, she says, were returned on election night, but they were put into the wrong bag. She says they had been locked and sealed in the warehouse, so she doesn't believe there's any concern about what is on those flash drives. They were there. They just were in the wrong bag, so they didn't find them on election night. Five of them were left uh, sealed in the scanner machines themselves. Linda Lamone tells me they were secure. Election judge uh, went home that night, locked the building where the machines were, and left the thumb drive there in the machine. Okay. Uh, she, I don't know if that's secure, but Lamone added uh, to me, uh, remember, they're encrypted and uh, that we would find a problem uh, digitally if they had been manipulated in any way. She said one of those uh, USB flash drives was never found. She said, so we created a new thumb drive and rescanned all of the paper ballots. So that's what we know about those eight data files, as the Baltimore Sun reported them, uh, those eight missing uh, flash drive units. Um, I asked how many more ballots we're looking at as far as more ballots than checked in voters that we're looking at right now. She says she does not know. That's why they're doing the investigation. She confirmed that, in fact, it is more than five per precinct, but they don't know how of the precincts they had looked at. But they don't know how many precincts that problem exists. So she says we don't know how many precincts we're dealing with. Um, and as to the presidential primary election, which Hillary Clinton reportedly won by huge numbers, I think it was 61 percent to 33 percent or something like that. Uh, I asked, will this investigation also affect the presidential primary? And she says, well, uh, well, it does, she said, in that we have to hold off certifying that part of the election until we can get the Baltimore City uh, election figured out. She says it's not going to change any contests at the congressional or presidential level. At least that's her belief. Uh, and in fact, there's some I think there was a 250,000 uh, vote margin reported from these optical scan computers, which can be gamed quite easily. Um, 250,000 vote margin. So we're talking we'd have to see a huge change in the reported results in order for it to affect the uh, the presidential primary, at least out there in Maryland. Uh, Lamone says she hopes this will be settled by the middle of next week. We'll be uh, all sorted out. And uh, one report I saw uh, had her blaming paper ballots, the, new, the, the paper ballot system for these problems. I asked her to clarify that. And she said, no, she didn't blame the paper ballot system. She was just saying that everybody needs to realize that we introduced a brand new voting system for this uh, primary and the voters and the election officials and so forth have never seen paper ballot systems. Well, they saw them, but not since prior to 2002. So she says she wasn't blaming anyone, wasn't blaming the uh, paper ballot system itself, was just saying there was something very, very different this spring. And therefore, some of these procedures, for example, the uh, the election judge who left that USB thumb drive, left five of them in those machines, that might uh, be the cause for it. So there you go. Does that clear up anything? Yeah, that does. Maybe? It clears up really, really, really well that, thank God, there are paper ballots that they can then go back and say, well, you know, if we can't ever find that yeah. USB flash drive, at least we can go back and count the paper ballots. Oh, that's a nice idea. Count the paper ballots. Maybe they should have done that in the first place instead of running them through these optical scan, easily manipulated uh, optical scan computers. Um, 
Okay, do I have uh, time for... Yeah, let me see if I can get this in. Uh, the Obama administration has uh, sent out a letter uh, on Friday to all school districts in America, signed by the uh, Justice and Education Departments, uh, instructing the school districts uh, to allow transgender students to use the bathrooms that match their gender identity. This letter does not have the force of law, according to the New York Times, but it contains an implicit threat... Uh, that schools who do not abide by this interpretation of the law could face a loss of, of federal aid. This, of course, comes in in the wake of these uh, stupid laws that are being <laughs> passed, these stupid mean-spirited laws, frankly, that are being passed in places like uh, North Carolina, um, requiring that uh, you, you can only use the uh, bathroom that uh, associates with your the gender on your birth certificate. Otherwise, I guess you will be ticketed, fined if you can't show your papers, please, before you go use the uh, use the restroom. Uh, and now, uh, well, last week, the uh, the Obama administration, the Department of Justice first sent a letter warning the uh, the state of North Carolina that they could uh, be losing, that they are in violation of the Civil Rights Act and it would cost them billions of dollars in federal education funds if they put this uh, hate bill, HB2, this anti-LGBT bill, uh, into place. And uh, in turn, North Carolina sued the, de uh, the Department of Justice and now the Department of Justice has filed suit against North Carolina. So that fight continues. It's costing billions uh, or at least millions, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in lost business alone, reportedly, for the state of North Carolina. And the Department of Justice is taking an aggressive stance here now. And uh, along with the Department of Education, saying that uh, no student should ever have to go through the experience of feeling unwelcome at school or on a college campus. We must ensure that our young people know that whoever they are, wherever they come from, they have the opportunity to get a great education in an environment free from discrimination, harassment, and violence. Administration officials are emboldened by a recent uh, ruling, a federal appeals court ruling in Virginia last month. So they think they got the upper hand here, according to The New York Times. This letter has been something they have been uh, working on for months, reportedly, that the Justice Department has been working on for months to send to school districts. And uh, it says, in part, a school may not require transgender students to use facilities inconsistent with their gender identity or to use individual user facilities when other students are not required to do so. Um, that's what this letter says going out. Uh, one of the uh, schools, a high school principal in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, where they recently put in a new guidelines to help um you know, to to allow transgender students to make it clear they could use whatever restroom they felt they most identified with, essentially. Uh, so a high school principal there in Louisville, Kentucky, Thomas Aberley, is quoted in The New York Times report saying that the new guidance from the Education Department would help administrators across the country who are trying to determine the best way to establish safe and inclusive schools. He said his school had little to work with when they drafted a policy that was put in place last year. He said, what you don't want to do is tell a kid, you know, there's something so freakishly different about you that you make other people uncomfortable, so we're going to make you do something different. 
This principal estimated that his school of uh, about 1,300 students had about six transgender children in it. And he said there's been no incident since the impl- implementation of the new policy. He said it's really just a non-issue in our schools. But it's not a non-issue for the folks of Texas, your people, Desiree. Oh, boy. Yes, your people in Texas. In a statement bashing the Obama administration's uh, letter, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton signaled that the state could bring legal action against the administration. Once again, the Obama administration has overstepped its constitutional bounds to meddle in the affairs of state and local government. Today's announcement seeking to unilaterally redefine and expand federal law must be challenged, Paxton said in the statement. If Obama thinks he can bully Texas schools into allowing men to have open access to girls in bathrooms, he better be prepared for yet another fight. Now, mind you, there is nothing that uh, the state of Texas won't spend taxpayer money on to sue uh, the Obama administration. Nothing they won't spend. They are happy. They call themselves conservatives, but they have spent millions and millions of dollars at this point, I think, suing the Obama administration over everything. And mind you, this attorney general of Texas, Ken Paxton, he is currently under indictment for a felony for fraud. And yet he's still serving as the attorney general of the state of Texas. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick also slammed uh, the administration's letter. He says that uh, the, the national debate over transgender bathroom use is, quote, the biggest issue facing families and schools in America since prayer was taken out of public schools. Desi Doyne, you grew up in Texas. Ugh. Have they always been such drama queens down there? Yes. I mean, what the hell? Oh, yes. The biggest issue facing families in schools in America today. Really? Really? Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick? Uh, He went on to say uh, that President Obama, in the dark of the night, without consulting Congress, without consulting educators, without consulting parents, decides to use an executive order like this, like the superintendent forcing transgender policies on schools and on parents who clearly don't want it. Patrick told NBC5, this will be the beginning of the end of the public school system as we know it. Oh, my God. (laughs) Jesus. God. You know, but it, it drama it, queen much? They're total drama queens, and it sounds hilarious and funny, but it's not hilarious and funny for the poor kids who have to grow up in it's Texas. It's horrible. It's horrible. Imagine how these kids are now feeling. Uh, what what these people are doing to them? It's it's incredible. And in the meantime, uh, it's also in not only in violation of the uh, uh, Civil Rights Act as the uh, administration at least is arguing that will certainly be tested in court but what uh, what they are doing down there in uh, in North Carolina is to me perhaps even worse republican state uh, leaders have complained about being bullied by the federal government over HB2 in North Carolina but lobbyists in Raleigh now tell WRAL news that they and businesses that they represent are being bullied by state lawmakers who are seeking to silence business opposition to the law. So these lobbyists are representing these clients, these businesses, and these businesses are really not happy about this law in North Carolina. It's really big government intrusion 
uh, frankly, onto, uh, you know, smaller uh, cities and towns there who have put in place, uh, you know, protections for LGBT citizens, residents there. And the state government, the big government of state government comes in and tells those towns, no, you can't have that ordinance. You can't pass that law. You can't keep those LGBT people safe from discrimination. And any businesses who speak out about it, well, the signal is being sent from the lawmakers who are facing a lot of pressure in North Carolina over this. Uh, those lawmakers are reportedly telling the lobbyists, hey, man, tell your companies, if you speak out against this, we are not going to help you. We, are, we may, in fact, hurt you with legislation. WRAL News spoke with 11 lobbyists who have experienced or are aware of such actions by lawmakers. None of those lobbyists would speak on record for fear they would lose business or be targeted for retribution. One longtime lobbyist called the pressure from uh, North Carolina lawmakers as a, quote, gross abuse of power. Another veteran lobbyist labeled it as vicious, adding, I've never seen anything like it. I can't believe I have to come to the defense of lobbyists here. <laughs> For Christ's sake. Strange days indeed. Chris Scrow, Representative Chris Scrow, who we had on this show, I believe, last uh, last Monday uh, to talk about this bill. He's quoted in this report saying that uh, this is really disturbed representative, a Democratic representative. Uh, he's also the president of Equality NC. He says this is really disturbing. It's a bullying tactic that potentially uh, leadership is using if it's true that businesses are being threatened that they need to ignore their own bottom line, because this is hurting the businesses, that they need to ignore their own bottom line in favor of terrible public policy. He calls that, uh, Rep. Uh, Scrow calls that just irresponsible, and it needs to stop immediately. Of course, the Republicans in the uh, North Carolina General Assembly are denying it. No, I don't know anything about it, said Senate pro tem Phil Berger. Uh, House Speaker Tim Moore, Republican, uh, also denied it. Uh, deny, deny, deny. Uh, but uh, House Majority Leader Mike Hager, a vocal supporter of HB2, recently tweeted at a lobbyist specifically and said, quote, and you can decide if this is threatening or not, quote, to the lobbyist. Wow. I'd think from all your negative posts about HB2 that you weren't a lobbyist and didn't have to work with the majority. He then says, well, that's not a threat. We want people to work with us. We don't want people that will go out there and bash us on Twitter and bash us on Facebook. Hager currently wants to remove state tax breaks that currently benefit American Airlines, NASCAR, Google, Apple and Facebook, all of which have taken public positions against House Bill 2. But he says that is just a coincidence. Of course it is, uh, Congressman, Senator, whoever the hell you are. It's just a coincidence that you're going after all of these businesses who have spoken out against your bill, and now you're trying to take away their, their tax breaks. Tax breaks which Republicans otherwise can't get enough of for these very same companies. But now, all of a sudden, you want to take them away for some reason. It's just a coincidence brother. All right, quick break, and we are back uh, with more broadcast right after this. Uh, some listener mail, right? Yes? Maybe. We'll see. Stay tuned. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away.
Strange days indeed. Welcome back to the broadcast. Strange days, strange bedfellows when you got me uh, fighting on behalf of lobbyists as I was in the in the next segment. And uh, this just across the wire for even a stranger bedfellows here. Uh, the pharmaceutical giant Pfizer announced on Friday that it has imposed sweeping controls on the distribution of its products to ensure that none are used in lethal injections. A step that closes off the last remaining open market source of drugs used in executions in this country. That is good news. Isn't it? More than 20 American and European drug companies have already adopted such restrictions, citing either moral or business reasons. Nonetheless, the decision from one of the world's leading pharmaceutical manufacturers is seen as a milestone. Uh, Maya Foa. Uh, who tracks drug companies for Reprieve, a uh, London-based human rights advocacy group, says, With Pfizer's announcement, all FDA-approved manufacturers of any potential execution drug have now blocked their sale for this purpose. Executing states must now go around if they want to get hold of medicines for use in lethal injections. I'm sure they'll find a good way. Good news. Good. Oh, I'm sure they'll find a way. They're using these um, these pharmacists that make up the drugs special for compounding pharmacies. Uh, they'll keep uh, finding a way. Those people, those uh, lawmakers in this country who really, really, really want to kill our own citizens. The same uh, many of the same politicians who claim they're against big government want that same big government to actually kill our citizens. Uh, but it's going to be a little bit harder now, thanks to Pfizer's announcement. So uh, happy to see that from the pharmaceutical giant Pfizer. Happy to uh, laud Big Pharma in that case, if not when it comes to the uh, to the other case here when it comes to vaping that I was going to mention as a, a follow up here. We've got some a listener mail whenever we do a show on e-cigarettes, as we did a, a few days ago. I get a lot of mail from people, a lot of uh, comments on the website at bradblog.com and elsewhere that we post the show. Um because what what is going on, what the FDA is now doing and their new requirements that will uh, require uh, manufacturers of vaping equipment, e-cigarette equipment, uh, nicotine liquid, e-liquid, as we call it, e-juice, as we call it, every single flavor, every single lev- level of nicotine, every single battery, every single tank that is put onto those batteries for these e-cigarettes, every drip tip that is used must now meet federal approval by the FDA, even though, even though people are moving from cigarettes, cigarette smoke, which kills people, kills uh, almost half a million Americans each year. Uh, die due to uh, diseases and, and so forth related to tobacco smoking, even though for a lot of those smokers, moving to e-cigarettes has saved their life. And I should say I am one of them by way of full disclosure. OK, I was able to quit because of these. So when I see these regulations that are being put uh, on the industry, on the uh, vaping industry that has so far killed no one, there are no deaths associated with the use, the proper use of of e-cigarettes, none, zero, but the smoking rates are plummeting and uh, vaping rate rates are going up uh, thanks to that. Uh, and and yet 
as uh, my guest uh, a couple of days ago, Chris Hughes, uh, who, who is a vape shop owner, has said this is going to kill the industry, this ban on vaping products. All right. Uh, so anyway, I always hear from a lot of people when we cover that story. Uh, one of them, Lauren L. over at uh, Bradblog.com, left a comment and said, as a retired doctor, I commend you, Brad, for quitting smoking. But just a brief Google search and my own knowledge of how lungs work tell me that inhaling chemicals is likely a bad idea. Well, true. Don't move down here to L.A., uh, Lauren. Uh, but she says, as for kids going to smoke anyway, because, in fact, these new rules uh, ban the sale of these products to kids who are 18 and younger, which is something the vaping uh, industry is perfectly fine with. That's not the problem. Problem is the regulations that will cost a million dollars per flavor per nicotine level per battery etc uh as for kids they're going to smoke anyway uh, she says only kids whose families smoke are likely to smoke maybe vaping products should absolutely be restricted as cigarettes uh which i disagree with she said this segment was amazingly biased compared to anything else heard i've heard on your show uh, well, thank you for that uh, note, Lauren. And uh, I do agree. Uh, it is biased. Uh, now, inhaling chemicals is likely a bad idea, she says. Uh, no doubt. Though, you know, we got to let the pharmaceutical companies who make prescription nicotine inhalers themselves, which are approved by the FDA, we got to let them know about that. But, yeah, I am biased. I'm biased in favor of uh, of. Uh, of, of vaping the way I'm biased in favor of climate science. I have read the science. I have read the science. And uh, so has UK's Royal College of Physicians, the same group that originally sounded the alarm about the dangers of tobacco smoke. They just told law, uh, lawmakers in the UK in April, quote, in the interests of public health, it is important to promote the use of e-cigarettes, to promote the use of e-cigarettes, as widely as possible as a substitute for smoking. Um, that's what the Royal College of Physicians says. Uh, and either way, listen, the point is that vaping, uh, as every single study has found, is far safer than inhaling tobacco smoke, which can actually kill you. That's the alternative for most vapors. So, you know, you can say in inhaling chemicals is a bad idea. Well, you know, I think Pfizer or whoever it is actually, you know, makes inhalers that have been approved uh, with those exact chemicals. So I'm with the uh, Royal College of Physicians here uh, and the vast consensus of scientists and doctors who have found that vaping is, in fact, 95 percent safer than smoking. But I do thank you very much for the uh, comment. And, uh, yeah, I, I am biased and I'm going to say so when I am biased. And I'm also biased about the blatant lies that I have seen told and reported by these very same, you know, supposedly anti-tobacco advocates and politicians the ones who are making it harder to quit smoking by these uh, laws. Uh, finally, uh, Bob A. up in Canada says, I listen to the broadcast while I'm making dinner. I think it's great that you mentioned CASAA. That's the Consumer Advocates for Smoke-Free Alternatives Association, CASAA.org. They are fighting in favor of uh uh, you know, e-cigarettes and saving people's lives. Uh, great that you mentioned them on today's show. Since the FDA lowered the boom last week, the story has largely gone uncovered. If the FDA has its way, an oligopoly will be formed right before our very eyes. Big tobacco will hoover up the $3 billion a year business started by mom and pop 
e-cig vendors. Happy, ba happy vaping for now, Bob. Thank you, Bob, and thank you, Lauren. Keep those cards, letters, comments, and tweets coming. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. You can also tweet me uh, at the bradblog is our name there. Use hashtag Bradcast. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it as ever at bradblog.com or at iTunes. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and of course to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is greatly appreciated. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.